The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management. From an investor standpoint, we're going to be doing this for the next 115 years, spending $3 billion a year investing in the systems, going through the regulatory process, getting recovery, and earning that, you know, roughly 10% return on that investment. So from an investor perspective, you know, this is the best game going in terms of stability and just sort of long-term view and predictability of results. That's Susan Hardwick, the president and CEO of American Waterworks, the biggest publicly listed water utility company in the United States, outlining the company's long view and reliability over time. Welcome to Magellan in the Know. In this episode, Susan Hardwick is joined by Magellan Infrastructure Portfolio Manager Joel Amores for an insightful discussion about why American Water is one of Magellan's best performing investments. As well as the company's long-term approach, they discuss the business strategy that has seen American Water grow its earnings at a compounding rate of 11% a year since its IPO. It really is a fascinating dive into the world of water and other utilities. But first, here's a warm welcome from Joel Amores. Welcome to our podcast, Magellan in the Know. I'm Joel Amores, a portfolio manager in the infrastructure team here at Magellan. And I'm joined today by Susan Hardwick, president and CEO of American Waterworks, which is the largest investor-owned water utility in the United States. And they provide water and wastewater services to more than 14 million people across 24 states in the US. Welcome, Susan. Thanks, Joel. Great to be with you today. American Water has been a portfolio holding for over a decade and has generated some of the most attractive and more importantly, most consistent returns in our investable universe. Earnings growth has compounded at an average rate of 11% per year since the company IPO'd back in 2008. And just in the last 10 years, as at the end of 2022, American Water has rewarded their patient investors with total shareholder returns of 400%, well ahead of the S&P 500's 227% return. Now that's incredible considering what we've been through over the last five years. So perhaps before we get started, Susan, can we begin by asking you to tell us a bit about it yourself? Tell us a bit about the journey you've taken to get where you are today, how you went from entering the wild and fast-paced world of accounting to now heading up the largest water utility in the U.S. Well, certainly, Joel, you make it sound exciting. Uh, so I appreciate that. And thank you for having me today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with your investors uh, about American Water and about all the things that we have accomplished um, in the past and what we're looking forward to continuing to deliver going forward. For me, I've been with American Water about four years. I came here post my career at Vectron Corporation, another utility in the space, a gas and electric company uh, headquartered in Indiana. And prior to that, I was with uh, Synergy, which of course is now Duke. So I've been in the utility industry virtually my entire career. Uh, when we sold Vectron in 2019 to Centerpoint, I had every intention of retiring at that point, but really wasn't quite ready. And it sounded like a great opportunity. And as it turned out, it really has been a terrific opportunity for a number of reasons. But I joined American Water in 2019, began working with the team then to sort of round out the financial organization. Uh, then we had a pandemic. 
And then our CEO, Walter Lynch, who was the CEO shortly after I joined the company, uh, actually suffered an injury. Walter's fine now, fully recovered. But after that recovery, he decided it was time to retire. And the board asked me to step into this role. So I've had the real privilege to take on the, the CEO responsibilities a little over a year ago now and continue to work with this terrific team as we've continued to build a good team uh, and continue to think about our longer-term strategy. So lifelong uh, industry person. Water was new for me four years ago, but so much about what we do here I'm quite familiar with, you know, from a regulatory perspective. So it's just been a real pleasure uh, to get to know this team in this industry and continue to think about what the future holds for American Water. That's fantastic, Susan, and no doubt you've been a big part of the returns that American Water has given investors over the the past 10 years. And for our listeners who might not be particularly familiar with American Water in the the U.S. water utility sector, can you give us a a 101 about American Water? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, And it's a great question. It really is, I think, uh, an interesting story. And again, like I said, I've been in the industry forever, and frankly, knew very little about the water utility sector before I joined. And that, I think, says a lot. It is a, I would describe it probably as one of the best kept secrets um, in the world of utility investment opportunities or just utility operations generally. It is a very traditional, what I would call a very traditional regulated company. We operate in 14 regulated jurisdictions across the United States, from California all the way to New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Uh, a lot of East Coast uh, operations. We serve, as you said, Joel, at the outset, about 14 million people through about three and a half million direct connections. We've got 6,500 employees across our footprint. We are focused, I'd say, almost exclusively on infrastructure repair and replacement work. So in layman's terms, our job is to put pipe in the ground get a return of that investment and a return on that investment. It is the most pure regulatory story, I think, in the entire utility sector. We don't have much in the way of non-regulated companies. We have a military services group, which I'll talk a little bit about as we get into our discussion today. But it is, again, I think a very pure regulated story. So we put investment to work. We are successful in the regulatory arena because I think, again, it's a pretty straightforward story. And we've we've been quite successful at uh, regulatory outcomes, both from a creative and innovative perspective, as well as traditional recovery. And uh, we've got good legislative support throughout our jurisdictions, too, that give us opportunity to accelerate investment. And I just think, again, you know, it's a big business as I I gave you sort of a sense of the size of the business. So it's large, but it's very, very straightforward. And that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, from an investment return standpoint, we've been very steady, very predictable, very reliable in terms of what we're able to deliver back to shareholders. So that's American water sort of as, as its place in the industry. Now, the larger sort of perspective on the water industry, I think is one, again, that most investors... And really, honestly, I would just say the general public probably doesn't understand about how the water infrastructure system is in the United States. There are over 50,000 water and wastewater suppliers in the country. And you contrast that to the number of electric utilities or gas utilities in the country, you know, in the 40s, 50s uh, sort of number. 52,000 people providing this service. And we're one of, uh, call it eight 
investor-owned utilities. We are the largest by probably a factor of three compared to our nearest competitor. And then it drops off significantly after that. So we, we are far and away the largest uh, public utility in that space. These 52,000 suppliers, as I talk about, you know, they're in all variety of states of well-being, let's say. I mean, they're mostly municipal systems. They could be customer sizes of, you know, three or 400 customers to hundreds of thousands of customers. And on the smaller systems in particular, where a municipal is charged with figuring out how to pay firemen and policemen and uh, build parks and pave roads and maintain a water infrastructure, the challenges of that management are very, very difficult. Um, that's why we, we're really focused on sort of acquisition opportunities, part of our overall strategy. But as you think about the industry, you know, it's so diverse and so varied in terms of state of infrastructure and quality of resources that it makes this industry a little bit challenging to manage. That's why, again, we think we're in a great position to sort of help facilitate that. If you think about infrastructure generally, as a country, we are on roughly a 200-year replacement cycle. Now, when I first joined American Water four years ago, somebody told me that statistic, and I said, there's got to be a decimal in the wrong place. Don't you mean 20 years? (laughs) And no, the answer is 200. At American Water, we're leading the industry and we're roughly at a 115-year replacement cycle. So if you think about that from two perspectives, you can say, well, gee whiz, you know, that's a long time. It's over a century before we have this system fully sort of refreshed, if you will. But the other side of that is, from an investor standpoint, we're going to be doing this for the next 115 years, spending $3 billion a year investing in the systems, going through the regulatory process, getting recovery, and earning that, you know, roughly 10% return on that investment. So from an investor perspective, you know, this is the best game going in terms of stability and just sort of long-term view and predictability of results. Yeah, no, that's a very exciting thematic and obviously one that we're large believers in. And I think you sort of touched on a couple things here, which we'll dive into later. But before we sort of dive into your business model and and the long-term strategy, Let's maybe set the scene and talk about the current backdrop you're operating at the moment. So US infrastructure is in pretty ordinary shape. In fact, in the last iteration, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave the country's infrastructure an overall grade of C-, which is, according to them, less than mediocre. Now, mediocre is arguably a, a generous description so how does water and wastewater in the U.S. stack up in all this? You know, how mediocre is it? I note that it was given a, a C- minus in terms of drinking water and wastewater as well. Is it really that bad? You know, Joel, I think uh, our answer to that would be yes. That's why we believe what we're doing here is, you know, sure, we're an investor-owned company, but we also believe that we have a significant mission here. We have a significant purpose in the the drive for solutions to the problem you're describing. And and I I was actually at a a meeting yesterday with our National Association of Water Companies, and we were talking about this very issue. And we were talking about, you know, how can we get more focus on the need? And I do believe it is around awareness. I mean, I just told you, I've been in the industry for 40 years, and up until four years ago, I had no idea that the infrastructure – for the water and wastewater systems in this country were in the shape that they were in. I mean, it is a very tightly held secret for whatever reason. 
and I think it is because, again, we've got 50-some thousand uh, people trying to do this work, and they're doing the best jobs they can, you know, relative to all the other priorities that they have. But at a national level, and I think even at a state regulatory level, it's just not widely understood, the state of this infrastructure. So again, you know, it's a sort of a troubling environment, but it creates a great opportunity uh, for companies like ours who have the size and scope and scale that we have to be able to generate capital. We have outstanding access to capital. We can do so at reasonably low cost. We can make the investments on behalf of customers. We can improve the overall sort of infrastructure landscape, and we can make pretty substantial progress. Again, that 200 year to 115 years, it may sound like, again, 115 years is untenable, but if you're talking about 200 versus 115, I mean, you can see the, the sort of progress we've been able to make because of the size and scope that we have to try to address those issues. You know, we need to address things like just state of infrastructure. We need to address things like preservation of the resource. So where is the treated water going? You know, uh, another statistic I found interesting, as a country, roughly 20% of the treated water, so this is water ready for you to drink, your kids to drink, 20% of that treated water we lose before it gets to the ultimate customer. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one too. The other one I heard was that there's a water main break every two minutes. So effectively losing 6 billion gallons each day. And that's about a little under 23 billion liters per day or, or the equivalent of 9,000 swimming pools. So you'd think that that would be, that's a jarring statistic. It is. It really is jarring. And of that 20%, you know, treated water that we're losing, I mean, main breaks are obviously a large contributor to that, but also just the pipes themselves. I mean, when we take over systems, we'll find that the pipes have deteriorated to a point where we're literally just distributing water through, you know, solidified dirt pathways or partial concrete, partial, you know, plastic, whatever, just pieces of pipes that are still in place. So, of course, seepage, you know, um, is also a big contributor. So, and again, you contrast that 20% to, in the electric industry, line losses, you know, what, four, five, six percent, gas loss, you know, one, two percent, you know, we're talking 20. So there's real opportunity here. And again, you just have to think about this from both sides of the equation you know, sort of state of play, which is not good and needs to be addressed, and investment opportunity that a company like American Water is really trying to push forward. And again, when you think about, you know, the simplicity, and again, I say it to our team all the time, we just put pipe in the ground and we get our money back plus a return on it. That's what we do. <laughs> That's a pretty simple business model. And, and I was actually talking uh, the other day with some of your colleagues and we were talking about in certain parts of, of the country, they're still pulling up wooden pipes, which were in the system and somehow have fallen through the cracks. And, and I think it was maybe over a decade ago, I, I remember talking to some of your predecessors and they'd pulled up um, as in the process of replacing pipes, had even pulled up wooden pipes. We actually had an example of a wooden pipe that we had recovered from a system we acquired. We showed it to our board. And I mean, our board was like, are you serious? I mean, you know, people thought, well, we're just joking. But no, it's, it is it is real. We find all sorts of things that are used to convey water to customers. Yeah. So there's an estimated $434 billion of investment needed. At least that's what's been quoted from the same engineering group. Uh, needed in water and wastewater over you know through the end of this decade 
And that's all, as you had talked about, you know, complying with regulatory requirements and safety standards, as well as system hardening. And and then equally important is technology and cybersecurity. So where does American Water fit in all this? Susan, can you put this into context for our listeners, investors? Can you frame the size in terms of dollar amount and the scale of the opportunity for American Water? We are spending over the next 10 years about $32 billion, roughly $3 billion a year. You can just sort of do that simple math, and we're roughly in that neighborhood. We have focused more of our annual spend on what I would call resiliency. So we are transitioning more of our regular spend to projects that are responsive to some of the changes we're seeing both environmentally and technologically and sort of customer expectations. Uh, So we're doing a lot of work where we have seen, you know, 500 or 100-year floods happen every three or four years. We've taken treatment plants and we've moved them to higher ground, where again, geographically, you would say, based on work we've done with our civil engineering teams over the years, would say they're not in a floodplain. Well, we're seeing lots more evidence of that type of excursion. So we're, we're taking proactive measures to put our assets in a different situation so we're not subject to those kinds of exposures. We're seeing customer demand vary because of the variability in climate. And we're seeing real extremes in weather, you know, really hot and dry, which is good for us, to really cold and wet, which is not so good from a demand standpoint. So those sort of variations we're seeing, and that creates a lot of stress on the system. So the ability to sort of predict and be prepared for that sort of variability is also part of our planning process. I think the thing that's challenging in this area in terms of how we allocate capital, how much capital we put to work, and how we allocate it amongst the various things we need to do is really driven by the customer impact, frankly. If I have to think about any sort of constraint we might have, and we do this ourselves, we talk about this a lot internally, what are our limiters on how much we can spend and how quickly can we spend? I'd say it really is on the customer side of the equation. You know, we obviously don't have trouble accessing capital markets, both debt and equity, having just completed our equity raise a couple of weeks ago. So it's not capital, it's not balance sheet, it's not uh, regulatory outcomes or legislative support. It's really none of that. It's just about the pace at which we can put this investment burden on the customer. So when you think about rates, you think about customer impacts, our average bill for residential customer is, call it $45 to $55 per month. Now, you think about that compared to, you know, we always use the sort of cable bill example, you know, an average cable bill in the United States or cell phone bill might be, you know, $250, $300 a month. I mean, it's a fraction of what you're paying just to be able to use your iPhone or to, you know, watch streaming services on your television. But it does go into the larger equation for the customer. They're seeing rising prices across all elements of living, you know, inflation sort of throughout. Electric bills are not cheap. Gas bills are not cheap. Uh, That cable bill I mentioned, not cheap. Our goal is to make sure that as we think about the customer's overall wallet share, uh, we try to keep our piece of that wallet at roughly 1% of the total household income or lower. That's how we kind of set our metric 
that helps us determine how fast and how significantly we can accelerate the spending. So all of those go into that larger equation that you're asking about. How do we take in all of the changes around us, the need to sort of speed up this investment to sort of continue to shrink this replacement cycle? How do we think about customers' ability to pay? All of that sort of goes into that equation. And we think we've got, you know, a bit of a secret sauce here on how we balance all of those pieces. But it is a constant focus. And, you know, I don't think we'd be able to be as successful as we have been and as confident as we are in the future if we didn't have that secret sauce kind of figured out on how all those pieces fit together. A lot of our investors know and have heard about the energy transition thematic here. And and I would argue that the thematic that you're on, that you're investing in, the opportunities that you, you have in front of you are just as, if not even more attractive than what your electric and gas utility peers have come up with. And what we're looking at, you know, as American Water has publicly stated out there, investors are looking forward to a long-term earnings growth rate of 7 to 9%, which is sort of best in class. Um, when we think about returns, and we're very risk averse at Magellan and, and 7 to 9% is, is very attractive, particularly in this, this environment. Is this a case of higher growth and returns equals higher risk? Can you talk a bit more about the risks in and around achieving that 7 to 9% over the next five? And it sounds like it's more likely to be 10 years at this point. Yeah, again, great question. And I think our, our real limiter there, again, is around how quickly can we push this to the customer? My personal belief, as I really sort of understand this business more every day, is that the risk is actually quite low in our business, the risk of continued performance at this level. I think the growth rate that we have established is appropriate for all of the pieces that, you know, I described a few minutes ago that we try to put together. You know, how quickly can we move? How much balance sheet capacity and or pressure might we be under? How much customer impact can we comfortably absorb all of those pieces together actually result in in the growth rate that we've established it's not about you know sort of inherent risk in the business there's my view no technological risk you know when you think about the electric industry for example lots of technological disruption there solar wind the impact of electric vehicles all those things dramatically changed that business that came on the heels of all of the federal regulation that came from clean air and other things. We just don't face those kinds of things in our industry. So I don't think there's risk from a performance standpoint in that respect. I think really, again, our, our pace here is determined by getting the right equation from all those various factors. We're quite confident in our ability to continue to, to grow earnings at the level we've been talking about here managed against uh, the size of those customer bill impacts that, that, again, we try to manage as we design the program. Perhaps the most compelling thing is, is that if we're looking at 7 to 9% annual earnings growth rate, if we break that down, 5 to 7% of that is really just the low-risk blocking and tackling, as you would call it, regulated capital investment. And that's, again, as you had mentioned, upgrades to systems and, and replacements, so very low-risk stuff. And then you've got an acquisition part of your strategy, which provides additional growth. But certainly the basis and the foundation of, of that 7 to 9% earnings growth rate is, is on the regulated side. So that's something that, that we obviously, we're big fans of. And it, again, it drives a consistent 
and predictable returns. And perhaps if we move on to the exciting part, the one and a half to two and a half percent earnings growth that's coming from acquisitions. Uh, I know it's a small part, but we find this acquisition strategy both fascinating and exciting. Tell us why investors should be as excited as we are in terms of this M&A strategy. Well, I think you're right to be excited about it. We certainly are too. And again, go back to some of my comments at the very beginning. There are 52,000 potential acquisition opportunities. (laughs) I mean, we know literally the acquisition population here. And we think that it's part of our mission, our obligation, our placement in the industry to continue to focus on acquiring these municipal systems that are struggling to provide quality water and wastewater services to customers. I mean, we're not just trying to put people out of business for the sake of it. We're actually trying to help these communities put themselves in a better position than they have been in. We have the expertise, the capital, et cetera, where a lot of times these communities don't have. So we are solving problems that they have. Communities may come to us and say, you know, we think we're doing okay with the water system, but man, we've got underfunded pension plans. We've got a need to sort of fix roads and do all these other things in our community, and we don't have the capital to do it. The water utility happens to be in, you know, in their view, pretty good shape. So if we monetize that, that frees up then a lot of capital for those communities to be able to do their other priorities. That's a reason that communities come to us. Just the state of the water and wastewater systems themselves, of course, is another driver. Why people come to us and say, you know, hey, just one too many regulations. We can't do it anymore. We just don't have the resources to be able to manage the system. So, you know, we need you to take over and help us. There's a whole variety of reasons. Um, And I'm sure you've seen the EPA just put out this proposed rule on these forever chemicals, PFAS. So we're still evaluating that. But that's certainly another area where communities are saying it's beyond us. It's too hard for us to sort of figure out how to deal with that. So great opportunity. Lots of drivers for these communities to say, you know, we're ready to sell. The challenging part in this acquisition strategy is... Take that same community, small community, say, you know, 1,000 customers, 2,000 customers, whatever, small town, run by a city council, run by a mayor, all elected officials, mayor responsible for a whole bunch of stuff. The water system becomes a very, oftentimes a very political issue for those mayors. Water's personal to people. So when the mayor starts talking about, hey, I'm going to sell this system, you know, people get kind of worked up about it. And so navigating that local process to secure that community and pick up those 2,000 customers is often, you know, a very time-consuming process, uh, frustrating. You know, sometimes you you think you're right at the finish line and suddenly the mayor decides he doesn't want to run for re-election and now you're back to square one. I mean, there's all sorts of things that make this acquisition arena, as you would say, very exciting. (laughs) But again, there's 52,000 opportunities to do this. And we have a very experienced and widely distributed business development team out in our jurisdictions that have those relationships, know those mayors, know those city council members, and are spending time in those local communities to develop those relationships and make the case for, you know, why now is the time to sell your system to American Water. So... It's a lengthy process. It's a boots on the ground process. 
that obviously pays great benefits. Once we have acquired a system, it becomes then like the five to seven percent on that triangle. They become now part of sort of the base capital, the base investment, and we'll just continue to grow those systems like we do our own. Oftentimes we, we buy these systems, um, you know, for a price. I'll talk a little bit about sort of the process on that. But once we get them, you know, we'll know based on our due diligence that there's a lot of follow on capital opportunities. So we may pay, you know, say $50 million for a system knowing that there's another $100 million to spend, you know, once we buy the system. So automatically there's $150 million of rate base that we can put to work right away. So that's all part of the equation. We have worked hard in all of our jurisdictions to get supportive legislation that makes the acquisition process work pretty effectively. And one of those tools is what we call fair market value. So we have legislation in many states that says that actually encourages this privatization, encourages communities to sell to a company like us because it guarantees the value they get in a sale and it guarantees us recovery of the purchase price. So we don't incur a bunch of goodwill. We don't load up the balance sheet with unrecovered assets. We all know going in, you know, what is the real value of the system and what we'll get in terms of rate recovery. So that facilitates a lot. And again, it works on both sides. The community, they don't have to be expert negotiators. We do appraisals when we let that process sort of determine the fair value of the system. So the, the city gets what they, you know, are entitled to, and then we get certainty around recovery of the investment. So very important part of the process. So is it just purely on price that gets municipalities across the line as well as, as regulators, or is there more than that to convince them to, to sell to you? Yeah, you really have to address what their real need is. I mean, in some circumstances, it is about finances. It is about securing a purchase price that solves a particular problem for them. But in other situations, it's less about the price and more about just quality of life. It's more about other community initiatives that they want to advance versus managing or maintaining a water system. And that's one of the things that's so important about this strategy for us is to have those business development folks in the communities, on the ground, understanding what that community's specific need is so we can design a transaction that works best for them. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like, you know, you typically think about normal investor-owned M&A. It's a different animal altogether, which is great, but also, you know, makes it a bit more complicated. And where is American Water's competitive advantage in all this uh, in terms of the acquisition strategy? I think it is our size and scale. Uh, we have a lot of examples to be able to share with communities. We have a lot of, you know, sort of track record here in terms of making communities a dramatically different place to live and work than they were before. And we use testimonials a lot. We do a lot of work where, you know, we'll acquire one system and then we suddenly then get lots of interest in the communities all adjacent to the one we, we acquire because we leverage that experience with these other communities. So it is really just our size and our footprint that allows us to be successful in this arena. I mean, I just... I can't emphasize enough how local this acquisition business is. You know, if I'm sitting in Camden, New Jersey in our headquarters today, if I sent my chief growth officer to some small town in Illinois to knock on a door, they would say, who are you? 
what we need to do is send our local operating people in Illinois and our business development team in Illinois and say, hey, Sally or Joe, you know, when I see you at the community potluck on Friday night, let's talk about the water system. I mean, that's how it gets done. It's a really interesting model. And I came from a world, again, where, you know, big M&A was just part of our DNA. Um, it's a different animal here. And we've been quite successful at it. No, and you have. And one thing we admire is the fact that it's not one, the acquisition strategy is, is a sort of, for the lack of a better term, it's a small but many. So one deal is not going to make or break any given year. It's a number of small ones. Well, like, for example, Joel, not to interrupt you, but like in 2022, we did 26 acquisitions. We closed 26 deals and spent 300 and call it $350 million. I mean, you know, that tells you right there the size of these. And so it takes a lot to sort of add up to the kind of numbers we're talking about. And it's a lot of legwork and a lot of, you know, long hours and a lot of disappointment. But we also have a lot of success. And and that's why it's important to sort of have a team that, you know, sort of understands how this works. And we, you know, we just keep plugging away at opportunities. And the best part, I think, is is that it feeds into that 5 to 7% growth component of your your overall earnings growth rate sort of a, a, a flywheel effect not to steal some uh, terminology but very much so it's exactly right I mean it's not a sort of one and done it, it does feed uh, you know sort of the base of our growth triangle yeah and it probably explains why you've compounded in terms of the, the total shareholder returns why we've seen such incredible compounding uh, for investors now Maybe if we take a, a slight turn here, Susan, now thinking as an investor, what would Susan Hardwick be telling investors to look for in a, in a utility? You've obviously been heading up American Water and you've been in the electric utility space. What questions would you be asking a utility CEO? You know, I, I am biased. Uh, I'll just sort of admit that right at the outset. I have been in this industry for a long time. I think this is a special industry and I'm talking about the utility sector generally. I've always believed that the work we do as utility employees is a very special kind of work. And I think that's even more so when I think about sort of the water sector and the impact that the work we're doing, whether it be through an acquisition or through just base investment here is a real privilege. And our team start to finish takes that responsibility quite seriously. Now, What's that have to do with an investor's perspective? I think sort of understanding the culture of the industry and the mission-driven nature of the industry is important to investors because we are committed to this strategy. We are committed to the long-term delivery of the work that we do here, both investment and you know operating service. So when I think about... In that context, right, so understanding the business, understanding the culture of the business and the culture of the industry, then I start to think about how can I just sort of put my investment on autopilot and let it just do its thing? And again, I think the utility industry at large is a good vehicle for that, particularly in the environment that we're in, obviously, with so much volatility, so much unpredictability uh, sort of through all sectors. The utility sector, even though we sort of ride up and down a little bit on some of the macro issues, generally speaking, the utility industry has always kept its head about it and performed well. Now, if I sort of differentiate American water from the rest of the sector, I think it is about 
what does the underlying business really do? And the underlying business, we put pipe in the ground, we get recovery of and on. That's all we do. And so when you're thinking about predictability, reliability of returns, reliability of delivery on the proposition, which is consistent earnings growth, uh, strong dividend with a good dividend growth track record, there's no better story than American Water. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the CEO. I know it factually. There is no better story. There is no better opportunity than American Water. If you want reliable, predictable, sustainable for the long-term investment returns, there's no better place to look than here. Those are the most beautiful words I've heard this financial year, Susan. <laughs> Keep it up. It's the truth. We believe it. We believe it. Now, has the, the value proposition changed over the, the past decade? You know, we talk about the incredible returns you've delivered for shareholders over the last 10 years. You know, what should shareholders expect from American Water, from AWK shares over the next five to 10? More of the same? Absolutely more of the same. Now, I can't sit here and tell you that, you know, we're going to go, I don't know what we closed at today, but, you know, we're going to go from 138 bucks a share to 200 bucks a share. You know, I'm not going to make those kind of predictions because there's so much of that macro backdrop that affects, you know, the absolute values here. But you can count on the fact that we will continue to deliver this quality of service. We will continue to deliver on our mission, which is to improve the state of infrastructure in this country to continue to focus on opportunities to deliver quality water, water and wastewater services to more and more people. And we'll do so in a very responsible way. Environmentally, all of the things that sort of go with the word responsible, including financial responsibility. We've got an excellent balance sheet. We've just improved the quality of this balance sheet with this equity issue we just did a couple of weeks ago. We'll continue to be focused on that secret sauce I talked about, the combination of how fast to spend, how to finance it, and how does it impact the customer. That will continue to be our focus. And as we do that, I'm confident we can continue to deliver you know, at the pace we've been delivering. And again, do so predictably, reliably. If we get off track on that is when I think people should start to worry. But I can tell you that our full team, again, from our youngest associate to our most senior person, that is the drive, that is the mission, that's how we think about doing this work every single day. And again, it helps, Joel, and I'll just be, again, completely honest with you, it helps that this business is pretty simple. I mean, it's big, but it's pretty simple. And that helps keep people focused. We're not distracting people with, you know, a lot of ancillary businesses, a lot of risk appetite that's beyond uh, what is the basic business here. And I think that matters a lot, particularly in this environment. Now, our discussion wouldn't be incomplete if we didn't talk about the risks for the utility, and those have evolved too. So, you know, over the near term, we're dealing with, I imagine, with inflation and, and interest rates. Can you briefly touch upon that, as well as some of the, the other larger risks at play, obviously regulatory, but more so cybersecurity? You're responsible for a very important piece of infrastructure. Can you talk around some of these risks for the business? Yeah, and you've sort of hit on all the key categories. I mean, when you think about sort of this macro stuff I've been talking about, inflation, interest rates, et cetera, obviously big uh, impacts to any organization, and certainly we're not immune from that. We're the largest buyer of pipe in the country. Our three largest costs are chemicals, power, and labor. 
So chemicals and power, obviously very much subject to these inflationary impacts. We've done a wonderful job, in my opinion, managing through that, through our supply chain. The supply chain has done a wonderful job of renegotiating contracts, working with suppliers to make sure we have access to supplies at reasonable prices. And we've also been very successful in the regulatory arena, making sure that we get recovery of those costs. But that's really the issue. All of these costs eventually make their way to the customer's bill. So that's the difficult part of this environment that we're in. How do you manage all of those inflationary impacts along with the need to spend the capital and the need to make the investment at a rapid pace? So that's the challenge around that particular part. You mentioned cybersecurity. I think it's an interesting topic, and it's obviously one we spend a lot of time on. We're actually working directly with the White House and the various task force on cybersecurity to address larger concerns around infrastructure. The weird thing about the water sector, though, unlike the electric grid, as an example, it's not integrated. So when you think about the opportunity that that cyber threats have on the electric system to do some sort of attack and essentially wipe out a significant part of the country or, or even all of the electric grid, it's not possible in the water sector. So that's a mitigating factor. I know that sounds weird, but it is a mitigating factor. Because our systems are so poorly connected, it's difficult to sort of disrupt a large section of the population. Now, what can happen, and we've seen a, a bit of this in not, not American water territory, but in the water industry, we've seen a few examples where bad actors have hacked into our water treatment plants, not ours again, but a, a water treatment plant, and hacked into the control system and changed the mix of chemicals going into the treatment plant. Now, in this particular case, it was detected, sort of human detection, before it affected any of the end users. But that's the risk, I think, in our sector, that someone is, it's not that they're taking out a large section of the population, but they're able to potentially hack into a system that could do bodily harm to people through, you know, the treatment process. We've got controls around all of that. Um, And we've got a very robust cybersecurity team. And like I said, our, the head of our cyber team here leads a number of national efforts around cybersecurity in the water space. Uh, So we feel like we're in in sort of good shape and a great place to sort of work through those issues. But they are real. And I just think they're probably less of a threat for us than perhaps other sectors of the utility space, simply because, again, the way the systems are constructed. So, again, I think when you summarize all of that, you know, cyber, I think, is that issue. But when you summarize sort of the rest of the risks around the business, inflation, interest rates, et cetera, the difficult part there is what impact it has on the customer. You know, these costs do eventually find their way into the customer's bill, and we have to just manage around that issue. And and to date, because of our size and scope, we have not had any impacts to our overall capital plan as a result of these impacts. And when I say that, I mean I mean specifically, uh, have we had to scale back our investment plan because of other cost increases that ultimately pass on to the customer? And we've not had to do that. We've been able to sort of manage through it uh, with all of our various tools. And Susan, perhaps lastly, what did you learn as a CEO during the pandemic and then coming out of it as a business, as a person? 
Well, Joel, that could be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a, a quick answer. I learned two things. I learned that employees in the water sector, the utility sector generally, but in the water sector specifically, are remarkable people, and that we did not miss a beat as it relates to providing service to our customers. I knew that would be the case, but until you actually test yourselves, like the pandemic did, you don't really know. And, you know, we did not miss a beat. Our frontline employees, we've got over 4,000 frontline employees, never missed a day at work, never missed a beat, never missed a single customer exposure. Now, we put all kind of safety protocols in place, of course. We did lots to protect our team as well as the public. But the ability to just continue doing what we do, when, if you remember, and I'm sure you do, in the beginning days of this pandemic, it was scary. You know, we didn't really know whether or not people would survive it. So it's pretty scary, you know, sitting here, I was the CFO at the time, at the start of the pandemic, and then, of course, you know, CEO at the end, sending our people out to do this work in that sort of environment. It's a very scary thing to do. So I learned that, that our people are remarkable. I also learned that we can actually do the work, not the frontline folks, but the support folks, we can do that work in a variety of ways. So, you know, I know there's always a lot of discussion about, you know, flexible work environment, all those kinds of things. Um, I learned that we can, you know, we're pretty adaptable people and we can get a lot done in a variety of, of settings in a variety of ways. And I think there's, there's a lot of advantage to that. I worry about, do we lose the development opportunity that you get from sort of sitting in the office next to somebody. And I think we'll see over time how significant that impact is. But by and large, uh, we've not missed a beat at that level either. And we've done so in a very flexible environment. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Susan, for joining us today. It's been an honor to have you on. Uh, This has been fantastic and very insightful. And hopefully our listeners have come to better appreciate the role of American Water in, in our fund and why it's been one of our longest held positions in the strategy. Well, thank you, Joel. We certainly appreciate the opportunity to speak with your investors today. And uh, it's just been a real privilege for me to have time with you here today. So anything we can do to continue the conversation, we're happy to do. Thanks again, Susan. All right. Thank you. That was Magellan Head of Macro and Portfolio Manager, Joel Amores, speaking with American Waterworks President and CEO, Susan Hardwick. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.